recently as a decade ago, the concept of value rarely found its way into discussions about federal policymaking about higher education. Now it's unusual to hear a meaningful conversation that doesn't raise the issue. Hello, and welcome to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed, as well as your host. It's great to have you here. Today's episode is the second in a three-part series on the value of higher education. Last week's episode explored the public's growing questioning of colleges and universities and of the value of getting a post-secondary degree. This week, we'll dig into how politicians and policymakers are responding to that public doubt, or perhaps stoking it, by defining and trying to measure whether individual institutions and academic programs are providing value to consumers. I'm joined for the conversation by Claire McCann, who until last month was a key member of the Biden administration's higher education policy team, who has just joined Arnold Ventures as a higher education fellow, Will Doyle, a professor of higher education at Vanderbilt University's Peabody College, who studies the government's role in higher education, and Ernest Iswego, who recently joined Lumina Foundation's federal policy team after stints at Young Invincibles and the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. In the discussion that follows, we'll discuss how the concept of value is factoring into state and federal policy, what's driving that trend, and whether an overdependence on economic outcomes can lead to unintended consequences. Before we hear from them, here's a quick message from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is sponsoring this episode and the entire three-part series. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Claire, Ernest, and Will, welcome to The Key, and thanks for being here. You all come to this conversation from slightly different perspectives. And I, I guess I'd ask all of you to weigh in on this first question, which is sort of how appropriate is it for federal and state governments to judge colleges based on the value they provide? And why do you feel that way? And what, if any, risks might occur in doing so? Claire, uh, maybe you want to start given that you've just left a policymaking position? Thank you so much for having me. One of the most important obligations that the government and really at both the federal and the state level um, has is to protect consumers and to ensure that taxpayer dollars are being well spent. And so for most Americans who are considering college or who enroll in college, they say they're doing it to find a job, to enter a career, to make a decent living. Um, And that promise has been made to students by higher education that if they do enroll in college, they will be able to earn a job that lets them repay their debts and and enter the middle class. But for too many of them, that doesn't turn out to be the case. Many students struggle to complete uh, a lot of programs and colleges vary sometimes significantly in the returns that their students see. And so policymakers also wind up making poor investments in some colleges and some programs that can't live up to that promise. So I think in recent years, that's why we've seen policymakers at both the state and the federal level try to turn to these measurable outcomes of success. It's a a way to separate the wheat from the chaff, to help students find colleges and programs that will work for them, and to help better target taxpayer investments into colleges that will provide a decent return on investment. To, To continue on that line for a second, 
Is, is value in statute anywhere? We obviously had a couple of administrations ago an attempt to use uh, the, the term gainful employment. The mechanism that was come up with then, to me, was the first real attempt by the federal government to measure value. And I, But I'm curious if there is any attempt to define value anywhere, because obviously we end up, especially when we're talking about measurable things, defining it so far, mostly through economic terms, which again, makes sense in certain ways, given what you accurately describe as the reason most go to college. But I'm just curious sort of more philosophically about like, how and why are we defining value in the way that we are right now so far? You certainly see it in the history around the policy, if not in the Higher Education Act itself. You know, you can read back at why the Pell Grant was created, why the student loan program was created, and and see that the policymakers' intent was for those dollars to help students go to college. And they thought that going to college would provide that return on investment, that it would serve as a source of economic mobility for students. And so you you absolutely see that in the in the original intent behind these things, even if it's not kind of laid out as a, a firm framework in the Higher Education Act. And of course, as you point out, the gainful employment regulations are a prime example of trying to put some math behind those words and try to try to really hold institutions accountable where the Higher Education Act does specifically call for it. Well, uh, you, you uh, certainly pay a lot of attention to the government role in higher education. What's your sense of sort of how governments are trying to define value and build some way of measuring value or judging it into their policymaking. Yeah. So I look at this a lot from the, the state level and, you know, state policymakers, I think, have perfectly reasonable questions to ask about what's happening for the, the spending that they're putting into higher education. Just like we were talking about, you know, the reason that students and families are paying for higher education is to ensure that, you know, that I can have higher earnings as a start, their first, if not their only goal for higher education. And similarly for state policymakers, you know, the overwhelmingly, as you, you talk to them, the reason that they want to support higher education is to increase individual opportunity in the state and also ensure, you know, economic competitiveness for the state as a whole. So yeah, it's a reasonable question, you know, uh, for all the money that they're putting in, are, are they seeing higher earnings from, from grads? And the, the overall answer that we can give is like, yes, that, you know, we have like tons of evidence, you know, good causal evidence that, you know, for an additional year of post-secondary education, earnings are going to increase by like between eight and 10%. But the problem is all in the variation, right? And so the, the next place that a lot of state policymakers tend to go is, are there certain areas of study that we should uh, focus on and certain areas of studies that we should discourage or even eliminate? And that's a much tougher question. Now, on the margins, there are, are certainly, um, you know, both institutions and programs where it's just hard to see that, you know, the, the, the institution or the program is going to be able to, you know, um, provide um, a, a credential or a degree that's going to uh, ensure um, uh, good earnings for the individuals. What you have a lot more of are these, you know, these areas where um, you might have, you know, decent average earnings in one area, a little bit less than in others, uh, but it's a really complicated picture. As a, a proud philosophy major, um, I always, you know, take offense when state policymakers say, oh, you know, we got to get rid of uh, philosophy degrees. 
but there's just you know the uh, the the risk that you were talking about in the beginning is that as soon as you start if you want to centralize that process of like which programs should be offered which are the truly the you know degrees of value that turns out to be an exceedingly complex question ernest tell us a little bit about sort of how you come at this question about the role of policy in judging institutions value and you know what you see emerging and and has you feeling uh, excited about this and think is promising and any areas where you think are are have the potential to create problems also you know i think first and foremost uh it's important for me to to kind of disclose that this this question about value and the broader questions that we're having about you know, the value of higher education and, and policy's role um I approach a lot of that work from a personal level first, and I won't, you know, go too deep into the weeds and the details. But you know, I am um, my my mom, you know, when she was alive, attended a small school in Dallas that uh, was for profit and made a lot of promises about the connections that it had to uh, different hospitals in the area. She studied to to be a nurse. She went back to school at the same time that I went back to school because the program was shorter, graduated a little bit faster. But instead of seeing the return on what would be her investment there, um, and again, critically, you know, she attended this career program specifically because she wanted to better her own uh, economic lot, uh, protect herself from, from, you know, economic downturn uh, and volatility. Um, and her own return was not at all what was promised uh, from from the institution. The partnerships that the institution promised that they had to hospitals um, and other employers, high quality employers, didn't pan out, uh, and she ended up in, uh, working at, at, at very low quality institutions. That you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that while she was working there, she contracted breast cancer. And I don't, unfortunately, think it's any coincidence that you know these same these same employers uh, she got sick and, and eventually passed. And so above all else in my own thinking about this work and, and thinking about the prominence of, of, of us discussing value in higher ed is that is the reality that, you know, of course, the data you know is important. And of course, we have to think critically about what it means to kind of put all of higher ed under this blanket. But that, you know, first and foremost, for folks who are especially for folks who are looking to attend certain programs to that, that they hope might provide some immediate return on their investment that, you know, beyond like numbers diving deeper, these are lives affected by the way the higher, you know, that they interact with higher education and, and quite frankly, the way that they see or do not see the return on the promise that higher education makes. So I think if there's anything that is most exciting to me about, um, you know, the work that's going into the field right now on value is the acknowledgement that this conversation about return on investments is, is, is part of the process, but that uh, the way that we talk about what higher education must do to kind of make good on the promise uh, that that it makes to folks who would who would pursue it directly correlates to how you know not just individuals who attend you know, different colleges experience higher ed and experience the outcomes after it also connects to how their families do and how their communities do. All of this stems from the fact that students and their families. Uh, as higher cost higher education is increasing, themselves are calling the question, well, what's the value of this degree? What is 
omitted or underemphasized when we define value pretty exclusively as we are now in economic outcomes. Claire, you explained early on why you think that's so, and it's the logical starting place, and it should absolutely be a core focus. But I'm curious if you think that's where we should stay or if we should ultimately be building out a broader definition of value. And do you think that's where we're headed? I would absolutely agree. The The value of higher education goes far beyond the easily quantifiable. I think from a federal policy perspective, much of what we're trying to do is raise the floor um, to require programs to demonstrate a minimum level of value. And so earnings isn't the only measure worth considering. It's it's not the only measure that policymakers consider, but it's definitely one of the most important. And again, getting back to what I said earlier, post-college earnings, like a solid living wage is what students are looking for when they enroll. Um, and so that becomes one of the most important questions for policymakers too. And it's I think also importantly, it's a measurable, comparable outcome. It's harder to game than some of the other measures that are out there. And so while there are a variety of outcomes worth considering for accountability purposes, I think earnings are a critical piece of that puzzle. And is there a, um, the government has now published program level data, and that was obviously a big moment. It has changed the the picture a lot in ways that I think have been pretty impactful. What are some of the ways beyond what is happening now that those data could be used in judging institutions? Do you have a sense of sort of where this might lead? To your point, the gainful employment regulations, which apply to for-profit and non-degree programs, did have an effect on the field. There is evidence that when those data were published, even though you know the rule ended up being withdrawn before it was ever fully implemented, the institutions responded to even the threat of sanctions. So I think it's that's an important thing to keep in mind is that these regulations did have an important effect um, and probably will again when the Biden administration publishes the new ones. I think similarly, we've seen a lot of states and systems trying to tackle these issues on their own. Um, They want to know how their institutions are doing, where the challenges are, how to better serve their students. Um, And so they're looking at state wage records in new ways, setting up exchanges with neighboring states. Some are working with the Census Bureau to try and get this information. Some are working with other entities that are out there like the Coleridge Initiative, which helps um, provide states with that kind of data infrastructure. I think there will be additional progress in this accountability space. And, you know, I think that won't be limited to gainful employment programs forever. I think policymakers are interested in seeing these kinds of tests applied to additional schools and additional types of programs. The post-college earnings measure looks at it primarily at value through an individual prism, the value for the individual. When I talk to people in higher education, there is a lot of bristling at the sort of perceived reductionism of that measure. What's a more holistic view of the value of higher education? And is that um, is that something that policymakers should be striving for? Or, as Claire said, is it appropriate for the federal role to be setting a minimum bar that everybody needs to get over and leaving it up to accreditors or states to look at value in other ways? 
is a more holistic definition of value a realistic policy responsibility, or does that go outside the role of state and federal policy? So I think it's a reasonable question for uh, policymakers to to ask, and you know this is Claire's done this excellent work in thinking about you know the three groups that are involved here: the accreditors, the federal government, and state governments. In terms of thinking about you know the, the the different actors that are involved in holding institutions accountable, and but at the state level, I think it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. You know, what are we getting for the, the spending that we're doing? But I do think that we could ask that question more broadly and certainly incorporating the other things that we hope that we're uh, getting from higher education. So, for example, the civic benefits such as voting um, and uh, volunteering, um, charitable giving, many uh, institutional leaders and also uh, state policymakers think that that's something important that institutions uh, should uh, help to encourage. There hasn't been a lot in this. We, you know, we know a little bit about it. Um, the the benefits in terms of voting are are pretty substantial. You, the little that we know suggests that other civic benefits like voting and volunteering aren't really that big. Not nearly as big as you might expect. You get, you know, just a a bit more, like you know, a couple days more of volunteering a year, or you know, a hundred dollars of charitable giving. It's not these huge benefits, and I think it's reasonable to ask why and what what could be done to to increase those. And then just circling back to the earnings, if we're, and particularly, you know, I, because I've kind of been in these discussions a lot and kind of thinking about them across different areas of study, the couple of difficulties that I would, I would point to are, first of all, for, we focus a lot on the averages, but within many of these areas of study, there's a huge amount of variability. And so business majors, like, you know, that's the most common uh, bachelor's degree that's awarded. Um, and Nobody's really there. I haven't heard a lot of questions about business majors. That seems like a, you know, like a good value proposition. It's a, um, and some with a, a clear connection to the labor market. The, and the average earnings are higher than, than other majors like psychology, but there's a big amount of variability for business majors. And so that's, that's one. And then the second is just the short term, long term that we know, you know, that STEM majors short term do, you know, substantially better than humanities majors. Uh, but what you see over time is the uh, a convergence between the two. There's a, you end up after 20 years with a big overlap in the earnings between those those two broad fields. So you know it's difficult to ask people to wait 20 years to find out what happened. Um, but I do think it's worth you know remembering that some of these questions about value won't be resolved until the person's been in the labor force for some time. And that's where you'd like to think that we will just enrich the the measures that we use and expand. And, uh, you know, we may be starting with income and post-college earnings one and three and five years out, but uh, ultimately we may end up with a richer array of measures that extend those over a number of years, in addition, possibly to trying to incorporate other factors. There are people who are who, who believe that we should be judging kind of all institutions on return on investment. And it's not just the for-profits who think that, uh, although they certainly think that, um, and understandably so, because they don't like being out on an island by themselves. We saw a proposal actually just this week from a conservative policy foundation in Texas, looking at, at sort of how programs uh, of all types would fare using sort of some of these same program level metrics. We've certainly seen publications and and others, not from a policy standpoint, but from a clear disclosure standpoint, hold 
some online programs, accountable, et cetera. And I, I guess I'm curious, now that you've left the administration and you don't speak for it anymore, but how do you view that question about sort of where, which programs deserve that kind of scrutiny from a pure enforcement and, and accountability level versus a disclosure level? And how much wind do you see behind the sails of a sort of gainful employment for all approach that some people out there favor? I think, first of all, it's important to to make sure it's clear why the gainful employment rules are limited to the sectors that they're limited to. Congress required in the Higher Education Act that for-profit and non-degree programs meet this additional test of demonstrating they lead to gainful employment. And that's where the authority for the gainful employment regulations comes from. And that's why other institutions aren't included. Um, So this is a great question for Congress. And I would also say there is absolutely no doubt certain pockets of the higher education system have shown disproportionate problems in the for-profit sector is absolutely one of those. We have seen higher debt levels, higher default rates, lower employment, lower earnings in the for-profit sector, um, broadly speaking. And so from a a sense of triage of the higher education system, uh, it certainly makes sense to focus those regulations there. But I I think the truth is that accountability is needed at all levels across the higher education system. Um, And one place I would say that is especially true is in the graduate education space, where we've seen institutions allowing students to take on really runaway debt levels for programs that are not going to have commensurate value in the labor market. So it is certainly my hope that Congress will start to tackle the need for some of this broad-based accountability as it is considering the future of higher education legislation. But also recognize there are a lot of limitations right now in the education department's ability to tackle that problem. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Today with Ernest Diswego of Lumina Foundation, Claire McCann of Arnold Ventures, and Vanderbilt University's Will Doyle. Will, what's your take on which institutions should be held to account on proving their value? So, you know, I'm absolutely in agreement with Claire. There's a pressing need in the one sector where we're seeing, you know, really pretty alarming results. And we have, you know, a really moving description of this. Um, uh, from Ernest in terms of the kinds of things that can happen to people if we don't have these protections in place. If you kind of move beyond that and we kind of look more broadly at the sector and if we started thinking about efforts to discourage people in majoring in certain things that might they may not earn as much in and encouraging enrollment in, in other areas, 
that is where the complexity comes in. Um, it's been, there's this kind of like persistent puzzle that most students do have a pretty good sense of which uh, majors will provide them with the highest earnings. They know that engineering, for example, and pretty like chemical engineering is a really great thing to major in for uh, earnings. It's just a whole lot of people don't want to be chemical engineers. And there's really not all that much that we could do to induce them to, to go into those fields. And so more broadly, you know, there were efforts at the federal level to redesign the Pell program to kind of push people into STEM and, and other related fields. And all that ended up doing was kind of providing more money for people who were going to do that anyway. And that's been the, the result that we kind of see at the state level as well. Into uh, graduate education, to the extent that there are deceptive practices, these absolutely should be monitored if the, the extent that there, um, you know, there's claims about earnings that, you know, uh, cannot be uh, realized, that absolute, you know, public or private, that that is, I do think that's the responsibility of uh, state governments to to address that. Yeah, the more difficult question is if there are, you know, degree programs that people would simply like to be in. Theater and fine arts generally just don't earn that much, and yet they're pretty, they see pretty consistent enrollments. I'm not sure we we want to um, design policy to to discourage people from enrolling in those programs. And that's where obviously potential misuse of these data aren't helpful. And, and honestly, you know, in, in some of those cases, it's it's political, not policy, where we're seeing governors discourage people from majoring in anthropology. And, you know, and, and think, you know, some of our most important professions are not particularly well paid. Talk about social workers and teachers and let alone uh, the starving artist uh, uh, that, that you were just referring to. How do you think about the the sort of historically low paying fields and, and what do they pose a conundrum? Um, program education, social work, you know, pick your pick your other fields. Um, do they pose a conundrum? And how do we how do we think about that? I think this is an incredibly important question, and it is a challenge. Of course, our country needs childcare workers and social workers and home health aides. And I think the challenge is we can't perpetuate a low-paid workforce that is disproportionately made up of women and people of color by asking them to finance their own training with unaffordable levels of student debt. So I think at a fundamental level, what it comes back to is that we need to ensure jobs that are requiring higher education, especially where the student is going to be paying for that education themselves, um, often by using student loan debt, those jobs need to pay enough to sustain those workers. And until then, we need to ensure those workers are able to afford the education, whether it's through scholarships, but especially, I think, through employer partnerships. Ernest, would love to hear your thoughts on this, but we have seen in the last decade, maybe more, a, a, a shift in who pays for college. And we have seen students and families uh, in, I forget how many states now, we've seen the balance tip where families, consumers are paying for more of their education than, than the state is. Say, the podcast episode we just published uh, this week, there were some data referred to about sort of growing demand for the government to take on a bigger share of financing higher education. You know, talk about a political battle that we might have in this country right now. But I'm curious sort of whose responsibility is it to ensure 
be going beyond value, but to affordability. Whose responsibility is it to ensure that college is affordable? I'm actually really glad that um, you brought this up and went in that direction because you know a critical part of well, critical part of this conversation about value is definitely about affordability. Um, and you know, just as Claire said, it's problematic. Uh, for us to presume or to sit with a status quo where people, and I think especially as we are thinking about and talking about jobs uh, often done in the public service, pursue those credentials at increasingly high costs that are increasingly in- increasingly, um, and certainly have been over the past uh, decade, may even argue several decades, uh, th- those costs have been shifted onto the individual. Uh, and in many, in the case of many of these public service jobs, um, you know, the folks who are not necessarily uh, wealthy or come from a deep amount of family wealth, uh, rather than the collective um, and then kind of understanding the uh, higher education's uh, societal value proposition, like a lot of, uh, or I should say, adjacent to a lot of Will's work uh, as well. And so, you know, in the sense of what is being done to think about that, what's being done to think about an investment in higher education as an individual risk versus maybe one that should be spoken about as something that's a benefit to society. Obviously, steps that the Biden-Harris administration has taken to tackle the student loan and affordability crisis, um, everything from the issue of canceling student debt, uh, even down to maybe the less discussed but equally as important consideration of new income driven of a new income driven payment plan that takes a little bit less out of the pockets of Americans uh, per month over a shorter period of time um, are really important as we think about uh, value uh, connected to affordability as well. To the broad question that you asked, um, you know, look, we know that going to higher education, you know, there is obviously an economic benefit for most people who attend higher education. We know that most people attend higher education um, pursue our education and, and, and seek to graduate with a credential that helps them better their economic life or economic future. Uh, but at the same time, we also know that, you know, higher education uh, and pursuit for people helps them in, in think, uh, uh, increase the problem solving skills, uh, the critical thinking skills, they become more empathetic. There are a lot of societal benefits that, you know, as has been the theme of this conversation, are much harder to measure uh, and then, you know, as a result, much harder to, to, to kind of legislate um, than some of the economic benefits, but they're equally as critical. And the way that we talk about higher education, the way that people view higher education and education broadly in this country as yes, a part of the path to this land of opportunity promise that has existed since the beginning, the founding of the country, but also as this collective benefit, to me, points to a world where we need to be thinking more about what it means to move away from uh, what is for many Americans a debt financing, what is for many Americans and their families, the seeking out of more risky options, taking out more debt and individual burden, um, taking on kind of more personal burden, whether whether it be working to to pay for school, which they know it might um, increase their benefit. We absolutely need to be thinking about a way to move away from that uh, on the whole and move back towards all of us putting kind of our money or about this as far as ways to lower the cost of higher education broadly. Um, and then so the last piece of that that I'll say is that, you know, even before uh, 
student debt cancellation was a big uh, topic for a lot of advocates. Um, free college was a discussion that I think that holistically we should return to and figure out ways that the federal government can partner with states, um, can part, even partner with local uh, municipalities to lower the cost of college through cost sharing agreements, what have you. We, we are absolutely seeing greater questioning of the value of going to college by the public. And I guess I'm curious whether you think that questioning is understandable and sound. And if so, what can move that needle back in the other direction? Is it mostly about affordability? Is it mostly about outcome? And what do you think is likeliest to sort of make a difference in restoring the faith of the country in the value of higher education, Will? So I'll start off by saying I think that Ernest is exactly right, that affordability is just a huge part of this. And that, you know, in many ways, over over time, higher education has been able to get away with kind of pricing with impunity because they could raise the price. There was a labor market payoff. More and more people went, even as they were raising the price. We may finally have reached the end of that road. And certainly we've seen, you know, tuitions leveling off and coming down over the last couple of years. But it's a bit of a puzzle, right? Because the part of the population that did the best during the most recent recession was the most educated part of the population. At the same time, we saw like increasing doubts about the the values of uh, college and decreasing um, enrollment rates. That's really alarming. And it's it's not entirely clear um, why that's the, the case. We can kind of hope that things will return to the way that they were, but I don't think that's going to do it. Um, I think the, the the answer is in some combination of uh, getting the prices down and then making the uh, information about the the connection between uh, post-secondary education and uh, a, a better economic future much more clear than it is right now. Claire? I absolutely agree with Will. You know, as students are bearing more of the costs of higher education, as Ernest pointed out, um, and I think particularly as the public discourse around student loans has gotten more heated, um, there is no doubt that we are seeing some students and families scared off of higher education altogether. And to Will's point, the risk of that is that students will make choices in the short term that alter the courses of their lives. They may be much worse off in the long run by not attending higher education or by attending a program that's not going to provide them with the value that they want to see. We can make that promise of higher education that I talked about at the outset a a real opportunity, a, a middle class pathway. We can make that a possibility by, again, raising the floor on higher education, by making sure that um, our taxpayer dollars are going to programs that have demonstrated that they will lead to value for students. And I think I think we owe it to students and to their families to make them that promise and to make sure going forward, we are committed to saying, when you enroll in this program, it will it will provide you with value and that value will be tangible and quantifiable. I think that's going to be a critical step as we think about restoring the trust in the higher education system and moving forward on higher ed policy more broadly. 
That was Claire McCann, formerly of the Biden Education Department and now of Arnold Ventures, speaking along with Will Doyle of Vanderbilt University and Lumina's Ernest Izuego. It's clear from their conversation that questions about the value of higher education are likely to remain a core focus of federal policymaking as long as student debt and affordability continue to be concerns. In other words, almost certainly for a long time. It's also clear that continuing to define value narrowly as early career financial success poses risks, but that most policymakers don't really have a clue about how to go about doing that. So I think it's incumbent on anyone who would prefer a broader definition of what colleges and credentials contribute, not only to the economy, but to society, to come up with ways of defining and measuring those contributions to help flesh out and complement Uh, the now readily available economic outcomes data that form the basis of most policymaking today. That's all for this week's episode of The Key. We'll be back next week with the last in this series, which will examine some of the ways that data about value are being used to define institutional success. I'm Doug Letterman, and until next week, stay well and stay safe.